0: All righty, everybody. I like people who make me think, whether or not I agree with them. As I always say to you, my friends, I I always prefer clarity to agreement. You know that that is one of the mottos of my program. Hello, wherever you are in the country, around the world, on the Internet, this is Dennis Prager. So if uh, somebody makes me think, that's all I ask uh, in uh, their intellectual work. Uh, One such person is Charles Murray, uh, who's uh, losing ground in 1984. 20 years ago, was a uh, classic and remains such, and it helped us understand why uh, the, what we spend uh, on poverty uh, so often just increases it. And uh, he has uh, written a number of books. He is a, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and in, uh, uh, oh, in the D.C. Yeah, you're in the D.C. area. That makes That's sense.
1: Right. I'm about 60 miles out.
0: Well, Charles Murray, thank you for uh, joining me.
1: It's a delight, uh, Dennis. It's been several years since we've uh, seen each other, I think.
0: That's right. So it's, it's a, it really is a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Your, your latest book, I'm not telling you, <laughs> uh, is Human Accomplishment, The Pursuit of Excellence in the Arts and Sciences, 800 B.C. to 1950. Now, folks, I have to explain something. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if I agree uh, with uh, the, the, even the attempt here. All I know is that it is, it is thought-provoking in the extreme, and that alone merits that. No, there are two things. It's thought-provoking, and it's Charles Murray. So those, those are two big, uh, big accolades here. All right, what, what did you try to do here? You tried to assess uh, human greatness, is that correct?
1: Well, what I tried to do, Dennis, was to uh, be able to look at accomplishment in the arts and sciences, including the greatest ones, across centuries and over time, which is something get a panoramic view of it uh... to see a couple of basic things one is i wanted to explore the nature of excellence in the arts and sciences you know what what separates the giants from everybody else what what are the great what i call meta inventions that human beings have come up with the second thing i wanted to do was to have a a a way of tackling the classic question why florence or why athens why is it that at certain times and certain places, human beings have suddenly erupted in these outpourings of great stuff? So, so those are the kinds of issues. God, I, to I, lo- and
0: I, love, I love all of them. And by the way, for those of you who may wonder, is, is this important? Let me give you an example of why it is. Uh, years ago, I said on my radio show that I believed that it is not merely my subjective opinion that uh, that Shakespeare was superior to Batman comics as literature. The number of calls that I got from college-educated people calling me all sorts of polite names was remarkable. Basically, it went like this. Who the hell are you, Dennis Prager, to say that Shakespeare is superior to Batman as literature? All you can say, Dennis, then this is what their parents had earned uh, for... A uh, $100,000 in college tuition or more, all you can say, Dennis, is you prefer Shakespeare to Batman.
1: Dennis, you're exactly right. That's why this is important. That whole attitude is nuts. And it's about time that that people understood why it's nuts. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it comes down to this. When you're talking about your preferences... Then, if somebody says, I prefer Batman to Shakespeare, uh, that's perfectly legitimate. That's right. If you're talking about literature, mm-hmm. and if you say Batman is indiscriminable from Hamlet as a literary work, you are not being non judgmental, <laughs> saying that your opinion is good as anybody else's. It is a judgment on a grand scale to say that Batman is indiscriminable from uh, Hamlet. It's also a judgment on a grand scale about the, the capacity of the human mind to assess information. The fact is this. In the case of literature, there are a variety of ways in which quality, aesthetic quality in literature can be assessed. These are not matters of opinion. These are the collective judgments of a whole lot of people, a whole lot of very smart people, who have written about these things very systematically, argued with each other over the centuries this provides it provides something important for us to understand in terms of quality if we aren't experts in literature we should no more pretend that we can say oh that doesn't matter then we can pretend that because we aren't experts in how jet engines are made, that uh, it's all a matter of opinion as to whether you should turn one bolt or another.
0: Right. So, in essence, we agree on that. Where we might differ is that you seem to uh, imply, if not actually state, that there really are as objective a ways of assessing excellence in the arts as in uh, as in jet engines.
1: It's a two-step process. Maybe we can agree on the first half because it's pretty much a matter of definition. The first half goes like this. And by the way, this is not a technique I've made up. It's been used now for about 150 years and made increasingly sophisticated. Uh, If you go to, let's say, a history of music, and you look at how much attention has been paid to George Gershwin versus Beethoven, what you will find is that maybe there were a couple of paragraphs about George Gershwin, and there were six or seven pages about Beethoven. If you go to a whole lot of different major histories of music, and you get them from different countries and so forth, you will find there is a very high level of similarity across these works in, in who gets how much attention. So that Beethoven always gets a lot of attention. That's, so if, if we're saying we can gradate their eminence, which is kind of a neutral term, then I don't think we have much argument uh, because by definition well then then
0: one but then one would have to argue that uh, uh, well you couldn't do that in film because pretty awful films do have more attention paid to them very often
1: oh Dennis uh, let me hasten to agree you cannot take a hammer and think everything is a nail and so if you say that about films you're absolutely right if you're saying that I should be gradating the quality of uh, music on on number of albums sold uh, and that uh, that that would be crazy as well. I'm saying something else and and here I guess I'd like your listeners when I use the word expertise and experts, I'm willing to bet the initial reaction is very hostile because. Expertise is in kind of bad odor these days. Yeah, know. it ought to be. We know, we know exactly right. We we hear experts on the TV who are talking nonsense, etc. All right, now here's the test, though. Pick out something on which you personally are expert, and and most people can think of something about which they know a lot. Well, now, what do you think of the importance of expertise in the thing you're expert in? And the fact is, you have usually very good reasons for not paying too much attention to amateur opinions. Uh, sometimes it's going to take you a long time to explain to an amateur uh, why, why your expertise is important there. But expertise has real meaning. Dennis, here's a punchline on, on all of this. When somebody who is good enough in the history of music, let's continue with that example, uh, is asked by Harvard University Press to write a history of music, I argue that when he writes that out, he's not saying, oh, i got to give a lot of space to Beethoven because he's famous and so everybody will expect that. He's giving a lot of space to Beethoven because as he tries to explain to the reader why Beethoven's important, Beethoven's important, it takes a long time. And it takes a long time because he did so much for the music. What you are seeing there is is the judgment of a person who knows an awful lot about that subject. And when you take a whole bunch of such sources, you are taking a look at a whole bunch of people. Are
0: you that. are you then assessing excellence or influence?
1: It turns out that I'm assessing um, both at the same time because there are very few really important artists in terms of uh, well, I'll, t- I'll,
0: I'll tell you why I asked because okay. you, you happen to be touching on the one area I claim some expertise, which is music okay. in in the arts. And and uh, I I know you you place Beethoven above Bach. And I I, and the last thing I want to do is get. I mean, if over coffee one day we'll we'll talk about that. Uh, But but no one denies, even if you do place Beethoven above Bach, Bach was more influential. Beethoven would say this. So there's an example of where there is a difference between influence and excellence.
1: Well, or accomplishment. Dennis, let me say first, I do not concede your point. Uh, but, uh, in fact, actually, let me tell you a little anecdote, because for your listeners, there are rankings of all these people. It is also true that when I introduce those, I say, look, don't get too excited about the specifics of these rankings. Uh, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart are, are all up there, uh, you know, so high that... It that doesn't matter, people, right? You, yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could juggle the three. However, I guess I would argue uh, uh, that that it's not... To be taken for granted, the Bach was more influential than Beethoven. We'll leave it that there, though.
0: Okay. When we come back, I, I want you to answer the the charge that you have this Eurocentric vision. Right. The book is Human Accomplishment: The Pursuit of Excellence in the Arts and Sciences, and we'll talk about the sciences too, of course, from 800 BC to 1950. One eight Prager seven seven six. Charles Murray, the author. I'm Dennis Prager. Back in a moment. Hey everybody, this is Dennis Prager. Thanks for being with me wherever you are. I love people who make me think Charles Murray is one of them. His latest book, just published, is Human Accomplishment. And what he does is, really, he just assesses, and when I say he just, we're talking about Charles Murray. So please understand, this is a serious assessment of who's accomplished the most in history. Not in terms of politics or war. Uh, which have their place, obviously, but in the arts and the sciences, in human creativity. Now, by the way, when you were asked, uh, let's see, who came up on top of big categories like Western literature, Western art, Western philosophy? Shakespeare's on top there. Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Aristotle, Newton—the people you'd expect. You mm-hmm. told the, uh, uh, you told that to uh, uh, the Washington Times. Now. Uh, How many of the choices you have made are, in fact, European? What percentage?
1: If you take take the sciences, where I have worldwide coverage, then basically 97% of all the people, or all the events for that matter, uh, come from either Europe or North America. And when I say I selected them, uh, it's not Charles Murray saying, I prefer such and such to such and such there are criteria as you take these multiple sources as to what gets in and what doesn't get out, which are kind of mechanical.
0: That's criteria. in the sciences.
1: Excuse me? That's in the, the sciences.
0: Right. Now, by the way, that would be reflected by Nobel Prizes in the sciences.
1: Yes, of course, that's only the last century. Right. I'm uh, just saying,
0: though, but but sir, even in the it last... It would also be
1: reflected there. And, and, and here's the, the, the argument I make. Let's stick with the sciences for a minute, and then we'll go to Eurocentrism in the arts. Uh, the fact is that Chinese civilization and Indian civilization and Arabic each had moments in which they did some dazzling things. Furthermore, we know about those. It's not the case that there's a whole bunch of things that were done by non-Western civilizations that uh, Western scholars just haven't bothered to learn. We know what they are. The the problem is, and I say it's a problem because of the way people react to it, uh, is that Europe, from 1400 to 1950, was simply off the charts. Nothing like it has ever happened anywhere in the world in terms of the sciences. It was an explosion of activity that has no parallel.
0: Yeah, agreed. Now, to what do you attribute that?
1: Or is that in your book? Well, we've got about seven chapters. Uh, let's see now, how do we... No, do no, no. In no, no, other words, seconds. you <laughs> you
0: wait. You do answer the question why?
1: Yeah. Okay, Why? I'm hesitating because I'm trying to boil it down. I know, it's tough. Let me take a couple of really important things. Uh, one of these uh, is that what we loosely call Western individualism is important, uh, which is to say specifically things in which people feel unable to do certain things by themselves on their own and to fulfill their own destiny. And it's a very practical advantage. If you grow up uh, in classical Chinese culture... Uh, non-stop kind of argument with other people saying I'm right and all the rest of you are wrong is simply culturally uh, not something that is accepted, but that's something that that science really needs badly. Another thing that went into scientific dominance... Wait, wait, wait. I I really want to review
0: these. are very major things and I'd like to commit them to my own memory. Number one you're saying is that the Western world, the European Western world, had a notion of your individualism, that I can say I am right and the whole world is wrong, absent in other cultures.
1: That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it has to do with the Christian religion. Uh, and by, I suppose it's appropriate since I'm going to say this that I myself am, am kind of a practicing agnostic. But, but Christian religion, in a variety of ways, centered life on this earth and this life as a, as a place, and I'm speaking specifically of Catholicism in the Renaissance as a place where you glorified God by expressing your gifts. That human intelligence was a gift from God, that uh, to understand the workings of the universe was pleasing to him, to create beautiful art was pleasing it's
0: to him. It's so ironic that, that you should say good. that in light of the widespread belief that especially in the Excellent. sciences, the Church was a handicap because, as for example, it's trial of Galileo.
1: There was a huge difference. Between the church, uh, the Catholic Church at the beginning of the Renaissance, and the Catholic Church after the, uh, the Reformation, and what happened in many ways was that there was, I think, a much more defensive position by the church at that point. Uh, there were always, however, differences within the church. But in the early part of the Renaissance, the church was a sponsor, a sponsor and an eager advocate. Of G- give, a us, give us, give us
0: dates. Give, give, give my, give my listeners
1: dates. Uh, we're talking about 1375, is usually when they say the Renaissance starts. But you know, the man who was crucial in all this is Thomas Aquinas, who came earlier. And it was Thomas Aquinas' teachings that took uh, Catholic theology and, and gave it this I don't want to throw around too much, but gave it, he took Aristotle and incorporated that into a Catholic theology. And this is what, among other things, just provided a great burst of energy at the beginning of the Renaissance. There are other things as well, um, but a, a part among So
0: those those two are powerful, Christianity and individualism.
1: And another thing that this did was it emphasized life, this life. Now, here's another way in which... Right, this life, no, uh, these are opposed, very... As these opposed are, to Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism... That's correct, exactly.
0: Why, I've always said that to people, and I've learned a lot, and it's, it's helped shape me. I studied under a Buddhist in England, but, but I've always said to people, if in fact you are to desire nothing, and that is the essence of nirvana, is to desire and expect nothing in life, then you don't desire to cure cancer.
1: That's exactly right. And by the way, I should say I spent six years in Thailand, and like you, uh, studied Buddhism and respected it enormously. Enormously, that's right. It's been a hugely positive influence Mm -hmm, in my life. Right. But it is also simply a statement of fact that to create great work whether it's in the sciences or the arts takes an incredible amount of effort people do not toss off masterpieces overnight that it is a mastery of craft it's a monomaniacal devotion to it and this is characteristic of all the greats all the greats and to have that And you have energy, to
0: believe and this is to reinforce your third point you have to believe this world matters that's which right. Buddhism does not
1: believe. That's uh, This world li- matters, this life matters, yes. and also I was put here for a purpose. That also helps a lot. Now, Dennis, this doesn't mean you can't have great accomplishment in non-Western cultures. We have had great accomplishment in non-Western cultures. What I'm talking is like a nutrient in the soil, of uh, you know, a, a nurturing of certain kinds of accomplishment, which Europe had an advantage over other parts of the world.
0: I'm telling you, I feel like I am in a warm bath. I, I am enjoying this so much, I, I, I can't tell you. This is and, and it's so relevant to our times. Now, with all of that, let's jump to the present. Because again, like you, I feel that there is a, a tremendous reduction in greatness in the last generations.
1: Uh, probably actually starting since about 1850. Uh, and if we talk about the density of accomplishment, oh, well, here we get to a thing that uh, may...
0: Oh, hold on. I'll, I'll, I, I, hold I, that I, yeah, that Yeah, because that, I'm dying to hear, and I suspect many of my listeners are. I, I'm, I'm, I, I feel selfish if I don't share Charles Murray with those of you who want to ask him questions, but I can live with that. <laughs> Nevertheless, the number is one 8 prager 776 Charles Murray's book is Human Accomplishment. I think it's self-recommending. We'll be back in a moment. This is Dennis Prager. Hi, you're listening to the uh, Dennis Prager Show. This is an orgy for the brain, I got to tell you. I am just having, I'm having too much fun. Charles Murray is my guest, his uh, latest book, and I told you at the outset, you agree or don't don't agree? It's so it's 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 truly irrelevant because he provokes thought and he has theories about life. You see, he has he has wisdom, and, and that and those of you who listen to me regularly know know what I'm what I'm referring to here because there's so much knowledge base, but there's so little making sense of it. And he's in a man who attempts to make sense of it, who accomplished and why they accomplished it. That is uh, what his uh, book is about, and we were talking about the three reasons that you gave for why Europe produced so much in the sciences. Now, going to the arts again, uh, why? You and I believe that the last generations, and you go further, you go to
1: 1850. 1950. Oh, 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 going back to 1850, saying things have been going down. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, Why do you believe that is? I have a theory, but I want yours.
1: Okay, quickly. uh, I think that enduring art draws upon uh, what I call in the book transcendental goods. And by transcendental goods, I mean truth, beauty, and the good. Uh, The good meaning, in effect, uh, it's a way of naming God uh, if you use capital letters for it. If you don't use capital letters, the good refers to an understanding of what it means to to flourish as a human being, to live a good human life. And when I say that that great art draws on that, I don't mean that uh, great literature must be uplifting and always tell happy stories. Take Macbeth as an example, a bloodier, more violent uh, drama you will never encounter. But the violence is clarified by an underlying moral vision. That's what makes the violence makes sense. It, it, it's what makes Macbeth speak to people across the centuries. Similarly, when Beethoven talked about uh, his music, he constantly talked, as, as most of, of the great composers did, about a template against which he was measuring what he was doing, an ideal of beauty and truth in music. And when cultures have access to rich, well-understood conceptions of truth and beauty, you get great art. When you lose that, you don't, and and that, in a nutshell, Dennis. And boy, am I condensing, as you can imagine. Um, that, in a nutshell, is what started to happen in the last half of the 19th century. The arts started to explicitly reject the idea that they were engaged in an enterprise which involved truth, beauty, and the good. Who unleashed that? The French. Well, I, it started. I, I can't. We can't blame the French for that. I don't think. Uh, well, it, we,
0: can't, we have to blame somebody because it is new.
1: What happened What happened in the 19th century, as far as I'm concerned, Dennis, is that the human species started into its adolescence. And by that I mean that we, we got hit first with the Enlightenment, which went crazy over the idea that reason can solve everything. Well, all right,
0: but where did that come from? Well,
1: let me just follow through in this. Okay, okay. A uh, in the 19th century we then get Darwin, there's an Englishman, Uh, we get Freud an Austrian and then we get uh, Einstein a German uh, who in various ways do things that seem to overturn all kinds of old wisdom and when I say we went through our adolescence we we, we reacted just like adolescents we decided our parents had been really stupid and that if uh, Darwin was right then uh, Thomas Aquinas had to be wrong and that if Freud was right then we didn't need to read Aristotle's ethics anymore Well, it's understandable why we started to throw all that stuff out at that time, uh, because they were major shocks. But it's taken a long time for us barely to start, and I think we are starting, to to pass out of that adolescence and try to integrate all that stuff. Anyway, where did this come from? It came, I think, from the 19th century, which said, oh, well, there isn't a personal God. Uh, There isn't a purpose on this earth. Uh, life is meaningless, and all of these things were consistent with the kinds of declines we 're talking about
0: right, and these were European based. The very, very place that had unleashed such creativity now stifled it.
1: Yes, uh, now American intellectuals went happily along.
0: Uh, That's see, right. your American intellectuals yeah. are Europeans. This is exactly. a theme that I constantly speak about. They are not American in their they're only American in birth.
1: Let's pick up on that.
0: Yeah, we will.
1: God, this, I,
0: I just, I just want to, when we come back, because it so touches the deepest thoughts of my own life, I want to share one with you. Charles Murray, the book Human Accomplishment. And uh, I know uh, i know how many of you now want to read it. For good reason. We shall return in a moment. I'm Dennis Prager. I trying to will put up by uh, Charles Murray. He is my guest. His uh, book Human Accomplishment. Spent uh, as uh, Charles Murray, one of the leading thinkers in America, attempting to understand and assess human greatness in the, in the area of arts and sciences. Now, let me just say I want to defend my uh, blame the French comment because it wasn't a throwaway line because I'm so annoyed with them today. Uh, the French Revolution was a very different revolution than uh, our American one. I think it inaugurated ideas which, uh, which helped uh, the decline that you speak of. I think Voltaire and the Age of Reason uh, uh, helped, uh, which were profoundly anti-Christian and, anti, uh, and anti-Jewish. Uh, I, so I, I, I think that a lot of the chaos... Uh, does emanate uh, not solely from France, but from France.
1: I, th- I think that's a fair statement. The the Enlightenment in France was very different from the Enlightenment in Britain, for example, where in Britain you had Edmund Burke and Adam Smith uh, were both friends and admired each other, and even though the, the, we see them today as being philosophically on different sides, whereas it was in France that they decided that the French of uh, philosophes decided that you could reinvent human institutions mm-hmm. from scratch just mm-hmm. by thinking them through, right. brand new. And that was, well, actually, this weekend in, in the New York Times uh, Week Review, I'm going to have a piece in there which talks about the role of the Enlightenment as bringing on a lot of the same miseries I think you you think it brought on.
0: The New York Times is, is allowing the publication of a piece showing that the Enlightenment is a source of problems?
1: Uh, the New York Times is. Is putting it in there, and uh, this is a, this is a short. Now, season, talk about was, human accomplishment, Charles Murray. I was, at, I was that asked that alone. to name the worst human accomplishments uh, huh. by them, and I, I had fun with
0: it. Oh, is that what you did? Oh, that's great. <laughs> Love it. Now, here's my other uh, reaction to some of your comments: uh, the fact that you place uh, God at the center, and that, that that the the removal of God in Western life has caused uh, so much of the decline of of the excellence. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and, and my, I do not ask this in any way to shape your own uh, your own belief. That is entirely uh, your business, entirely, and, and I, my respect for you is, has no dependence on it. However, in my life, the realization of the incapacity of man to produce greatness without reference to God is one of the most powerful arguments to me for God's existence.
1: Well, Dennis, I'm with you. Uh, I conclude the book uh, by talking about the ways in which when you see human beings performing at a level that we are unable to come close to. When When you think of a Bach, for example, well, Johann Sebastian Bach does not have to defend his way of looking at the world. He has a prima facie case to be made for it. And furthermore, those of us who stand at this very secular age, and again, I'm talking about secular in terms of intellectuals and so forth, if we say to ourselves, oh, well, they deluded themselves into uh, believing in God, and that enabled them to compose better music, it's a little bit... A little bit presumptuous to say, gee, these guys who did all these wonderful things just happen to be uniformly stupid about the great issues. That's right. Uh, That that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me.
0: That's right. So maybe so did this have, if I may ask, uh, did it have, did it push you on the agnosticism meter?
1: Well, I I attend Quaker meeting with my wife uh, and have for years, and so when I say I'm an agnostic, I am. A very active, a practicing. <laughs> I, I, I'm agnostic. an active seeker, <laughs> and and there is, I, I will say this that uh, that there is no belief that I find so absolutely implausible uh, as confident atheism. So I, I guess that I would like nothing better than to to have the the faith that that others are blessed with. Uh, I do not right now. Uh, I am not sitting on the sidelines saying it's not important. Right. No, you, that's the key.
0: Listen, very few religious people understand the importance of God as you, the agnostic, does. So that that's that's the critical matter, is to understand how important it is. And why can I add I, something
1: to that, Dennis? Yes. And that is, it's true not just in the West. Uh, because when you look at the great, uh, at the, when China was at its peak and so forth, and remember I talked about the, the sense of of um, of the of the transcendental goods and so forth, uh, there was also when you did your, the greatest work in the East. That it was the same spiritual frameworks within which people had to think. Uh, and the way I generalize it in the book is that humans have done their best work when they have been most sure that the cosmos has a meaning and that they have a place in the cosmos.
0: Boy, is that true. Now, here's another uh, factor that I'd like you to uh, offer a thought on, which is enormous, and that is the utter predominance of men.
1: Yes, uh, they constitute 98%. Well, there, there are two ways of looking at it, and I present both, and I think they're both important. Uh, one is simply that until about uh, 100 years ago, in many ways, women were just systematically shut out of all sorts of activities, and that's bound to have an effect. But. Having said that, I think other things are at work as well. And uh, I review some of the scientific evidence on that, but I will tell you what uh, I'm convinced is one of the major ones, and that is the very different effect that motherhood has on women than fatherhood has on men. And I can sum it up in terms of my own marriage very quickly. It's easy, I hate to say this, but it's easy for me to not think about the kids for several hours at a time, to block it out and say, I'm just not going to worry about them. It is impossible for my wife to do so, who's a very gifted woman, uh, wonderful writer and all that. She cannot say, "I'm just going to think about my work." Uh, if
0: women had men's natures, the human species would have ceased to survive one generation.
1: Right, and and you know that's, that's
0: why they wake up, and we don't hear the kids. How come every wife says, "How come you don't hear the kid crying?" And he slept through it.
1: Uh, there's, there's exactly that's, that's exactly what I'm saying, and it's not just when they're babies, it's all the way through, and the better the mother, the harder it is for her to segregate out a period of time and say I'm just going to think about work now, and this goes back, Dennis, to what I said earlier. We're not talking here about juggling careers and families, uh, we're not talking about 40 hours a week to do great, great work in the arts and sciences. We are talking about monomaniacal dedication. That's hard to do with your mother.
0: Yep, that's right, right. Exactly, that is exactly right. And not, not not so easy to do if you're a father. Monomaniacal dedication, to right. be honest, it takes but a special. Thank do That it that's exactly right. I'm not sure I'd want to be Beethoven's son, but I do want to hear his music. We'll be back in a moment with Charles Murray. I'm Dennis Prager. I'm Dennis Prager, and I thank you for being with me. Sometimes I, uh, I'm just grateful that I have this job. Actually, I'm always grateful, to be perfectly honest, every minute of my broadcast day and beyond. But sometimes I just think, wow, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this.
1: Well, Dennis, this has been a, a very fun hour for me, too. Uh, this has been a real conversation. Well, thank you. It's
0: very kind of you to say. Charles Murray is the uh, author of Human Accomplishment, and it is the, uh, the, the, uh, the what and the why of human accomplishment arts and sciences and uh, what uh, i i in, in effect what might even be uh, predicted I, I assume since you say we are we we may be getting out of the the teenagehood of of western life here of just rebelling against everything our parents uh, did that you Don't have you, some, you ha, i i that we're getting out of it i think well look i believe that you know there is the struggle for the american soul that will ultimately determine the human future. And I, I think it's a 50-50. I'm, I, I don't know who will... I'm agnostic on who will win.
1: Uh, what I see is, uh, among intellectuals, again, uh, because I think that religion is doing fine in a lot of the country. It's, it's among the secularized intellectuals that it isn't. I see a lot more people forced back to ask questions such as, what does it mean to live a human life? And why is there something rather than nothing? Mm-hmm. The kinds of questions that we've only been able to avoid thinking about them through some kind of bizarre historical accidents. People have to think about these questions, and it's as if we've we've forced ourselves not to, and we're wearing out. We have to look at them again.
0: By the way, this will be of relevance to almost nobody listening, but since I am the MC, (laughs) if that's the word, I'm the host, I'm going to ask this. Was Haydn on your list? Oh, of course. How high? Uh,
1: Five. That's pretty high. Because Haydn's my man. Uh, Haydn, Haydn, Haydn is cool. <laughs> Haydn is cool. <laughs>
0: By the way, I learned something because Bach and Haydn are my two favorite, and I learned something a few years ago that brought chills to my uh, to my body, and that is that they were the two who most consistently wrote in nomine Domini,
1: in the name of God, on their manuscripts. Uh, and of course, Bach himself was doing it consciously every week for the church. He was turning out a new cantata, a new yep, brilliancy right. every week, and he was the organist, and, and he he saw himself very explicitly in his writings as in the service of God when he created that music.
0: And it and it sounds it, and it's one of my ways of getting closer to God. Charles Murray, I, I, I've I said it often, and I don't want to overdo it. It's just been one of the great hours. Your book is so self-recommending, I would just tell you, you look at the Amazon uh, sales uh, rank uh, in the next 24 hours. I think you'll realize how serious my listeners are. Well, that would be lovely. Thank you so much. Keep writing. Keep thinking. Thank you. And thank you, my listeners. Don't go away. You're listening to The Dennis Prager Show.